Hello everyone and welcome back to For the Love of True Crime. Before I jump into my usual disclaimer and warning, I just want to make a quick announcement. I am a college student and I did recently go back to school, so I will not be posting as frequent as I was the last week. I will definitely try to get at least one video posted per week, maybe two. I'm hoping by my next video that I have a more clear schedule for you guys, but definitely follow my Twitter for more updates and I'll definitely post in like the community page for YouTube if I can't post that week. Alright, but let's get started. So I just want to give my usual disclaimer that I mean no harm towards any of the people I discuss in this case. These are simply opinions and facts that I've learned about the case that I'm compiling into one video. I would also like to give a quick warning that this case does involve mentions of domestic violence, gory violence, and suicide. For today's episode, we will discuss the murder of Nicole Brown Simpson and Ron Goldman. The main suspect in this case was Nicole's ex-husband named Arenthal James Simpson, also known as O.J. Simpson, who is a very famous retired football player. Let me give some background on Ron and Nicole before we discuss O.J. any further. So let's discuss Ron first. Ron Goldman was born on July 2, 1968 to his parents Sharon and Frederick. He grew up near Chicago in Buffalo Grove, Illinois. His parents got a divorce when Ron was six years old, and initially he lived with his mother, but then he moved in with his father alongside his sister and was raised by Frederick. The Goldman family followed the Jewish faith and Ron attended Adlai E. Stevenson High School before graduating and moving on to Illinois State University. There is where he completed one semester majoring in psychology before dropping out and moving to Southern California with his family. While in California, Ron supported himself financially through a string of jobs. That included modeling, being a tennis instructor, and a waiter. His dream was to open up his own bar or restaurant in the Brentwood area. Now let's talk about Nicole. She was born May 19, in 1959 in Frankfurt, West Germany, to her parents Juditha and Louis Brown. Her mother was German and her father was American. During her childhood, Nicole's family relocated to the United States where she got her diploma from Dana Hills High School in 1977. During that same year, Nicole met OJ when she was just 18 years old, while she was working as a waitress in a Beverly Hills private club named The Daisy. Even though OJ was 30 at the time and had a pregnant wife, he and Nicole began a relationship. OJ and his first wife, Margaret, officially divorced in March of 1979. In 1985, Nicole and OJ exchanged their vows and officially got married. Sorry for jumping around so much, but I just want to make sure that I give background on each and every player in this story. Now let's discuss OJ Simpson. OJ was born Arenthal James Simpson on July 9, 1947 in San Francisco, California to his parents Eunice and Jimmy. While growing up in San Francisco, OJ lived in the housing projects of Potrero Hill neighborhood. During his early teens, he actually joined a street gang called the Persian Warriors, where he would eventually end up in San Francisco Youth Guidance Center. He attended Galileo Academy of Science and Technology, where he played for the school's football team. He graduated in 1965, and although OJ was the star of his football team, his poor grades prevented him from attracting the interests of many college recruiters. He ended up attending City College of San Francisco, where he focused on football as a running back and defensive back. After performing exceedingly well in the sport, many colleges reached out to OJ as a transfer student to play football for them. 
Ultimately, OJ decided to transfer to the University of Southern California where he played as a running back and led the nation in rushing the ball. If you're not a football fan, and I'm basically speaking gibberish right now, long story short, OJ was gifted in football. He even went on to play in the NFL after being selected as the first draft pick by the Buffalo Bills. The fame started to get to OJ's head though as he demanded what was then the largest contract in professional sports history and even threatened to quit football and pursue acting if the Bills did not agree to pay him the $650,000 over the course of his five-year contract. After having a hard time in the professional sports worlds for the first three seasons, OJ finally got his bearings and began to excel in the sport and even won several rushing titles. He played for the Bills for nine seasons and then went on to play for the San Francisco 49ers for two seasons before retiring in 1979. During his time in the sport, OJ earned the nickname The Juice as he was full of energy and his name could also stand for Orange Juice. After retiring from football, OJ went on to pursue acting and had a pretty extensive list of productions. Like I mentioned before, OJ and Nicole got married in 1985. Their marriage only lasted seven years, but during that time they had two children together, Sydney and Justin. Over the course of the seven-year marriage, OJ was physically abusive to Nicole, which led her to call the police several times but only led to one arrest. Referring to the one arrest, Nicole later dropped the charges after her parents refused to help her and convinced her to reconcile with OJ. After their divorce, which was filed by Nicole in February of 2005, 1992, OJ and Nicole did get back together, but OJ was still physically abusive. Several months after reporting OJ to the police once more, they officially split up for the second and final time. After their divorce, OJ would harass and stalk Nicole, which is a common technique used among abusers in order to try to get their victims to come back to them. There was a specific time that OJ was spying on Nicole while she was having sex with a new boyfriend. After this incident, OJ threatened Nicole's life and said if he ever found her with another man, he would murder them both. This prompted Nicole to draft a will as she was genuinely terrified for her life. Nicole even contacted a woman's shelter and asked to stay there as she feared what her ex-husband might do. She also noticed that a set of keys to her house were missing. These keys were later found on OJ's person when he was officially arrested for the murder of Nicole Brown and Ron Goldman. Let's jump to the day of the murders and discuss the timeline. On the evening of July 12, 1994, both OJ and Nicole attended their daughter, Sydney's dance recital at Paul Revere Middle School. After the performance, Nicole went to dinner at Mezzaluna Restaurant but did not invite OJ to join her and her family. Since he wasn't invited to the restaurant, he and his close friend, Kato Kalin, who resided in OJ's guest house, went out to grab McDonald's for dinner. Ron Goldman worked at the Mezzaluna but was not assigned to Nicole's table, but at this point he and Nicole had been friends for around five or six weeks. After dinner, Nicole and her children went to Ben and Jerry's for dessert and then returned to her condo on Bundy Drive in Brentwood. At 9.37pm that night, the manager of the Mezzaluna called Nicole's mother on the phone inquiring about a pair of eyeglasses that were left on their table. At the end of his shift at 9.50 p.m., Ron took the glasses with him with the intention of dropping them off to Nicole on his way home. Starting at 10.15 p.m., neighbors of Nicole reported hearing a dog constantly barking outside throughout the night. 
It wasn't until 50 minutes later that a dog walker who lived a few blocks away discovered the barking dog and saw Nicole's Ankita dog in the street outside of her home. The Ankita followed the dog walker home and he ended up leaving it with a neighboring couple who offered to watch the dog for the night. But the dog would not relax, so the couple decided to bring it back to where he was found in order to try to find the owner. This is when the couple discovered Nicole's dead body lying outside of her home just around midnight. The police were called, and while searching the crime scene, they discovered Ron's dead body as well. Investigators were able to determine that Nicole was likely the main target and murdered first as the walkway leading to the stairs was covered in blood, but Nicole's feet were clean. She was stabbed multiple times in the neck and head, but there were little defensive wounds on her hands, leading detectives to conclude that there was a short struggle. As if that isn't brutal enough, there was a bruise on the center of her back along with a footprint on her clothing, which told investigators that the killer stood on her back, pulled her head up by her hair, and deeply slit her throat. Ron was found in a similar manner. He had multiple stab wounds to the body and neck and few defensive wounds on his hands. Near Ron's body, there was a left-hand, extra-large, Eris Isostoner light leather glove and the glasses he meant to return to Nicole. Detectives determined that Ron must have arrived at Nicole's condo during the murder and was murdered as well in order to silence him and not leave any witnesses behind. There was a trail of the attacker's bloody shoe prints through the back gate of the condo, and to the left of those prints were drops of blood from the assailant which means that they were bleeding from their left hand. On the night of June 12th, OJ was scheduled to board a red-eye flight from Los Angeles International Airport to Chicago in order to play golf with some business associates. The flight was due to take off at 11.45 p.m. However, the limousine driver meant to pick up OJ arrived early at 10.25 p.m. Around 10.40, the driver began to buzz the intercom in order to notify OJ that he had arrived but he received no answer. After smoking a cigarette and calling his boss to get OJ's home phone number, the driver saw a large figure enter the home and claimed that the silhouette matched that of OJ. Kato Kalen would be the one to discover the limousine driver waiting and let him into the driveway. Moments after this, OJ came out from inside the house and claimed that he had overslept. Both the driver and Kato would later testify that OJ seemed very agitated that night. Once arriving at the airport, OJ had four pieces of luggage for his flight, but he would not let the driver touch a knapsack. Witnesses later saw OJ throwing away items from inside the knapsack into a garbage can in the airport. Detectives believe that this is how he disposed of the murder weapon, shoes, and bloody clothes that OJ wore during the murder. After Nicole's body was identified, LAPD Commander Keith Bushy instructed detectives Tom Lang Philip Van Natter, Ron Phillips, and Mark Furman to notify OJ about Nicole's murder and also to inform him that his children were at the police station as they were brought down after being discovered sleeping in the condo. Not knowing that he was on a flight to Chicago, detectives showed up at his home and buzzed the intercom with no answer. After seeing blood on OJ's famous Ford Bronco, police had probable cause that someone was injured and entered the premises without a search warrant. In a walk around the mansion, Furman discovered a blood-stained right-hand glove, which was later determined to be a match to the one found at the scene by Ron's body. Due to this discovery, police had enough evidence to place OJ under arrest. 
But before arresting him, Phillips called OJ after he landed in Chicago to tell him about the murder of his ex-wife. Phillips later said that OJ sounded, quote, very upset, but did not seem too concerned about the circumstances of the death. The detective noted that Simpson only asked if the children saw the murder, not if they were harmed in any way. The next day, on June 13th, the police contacted OJ and took him to Parker Center for questioning. Detective Lang immediately noticed that Simpson had a cut on his left hand, which was consistent with the cut the killer must have had due to the circumstances at the scene. Lang asked OJ how he got the cut, and he replied that he didn't remember how he got it. OJ went on to volunteer to give some of his blood to compare to the blood found at the crime scene. On June 14th, OJ hired lawyer Robert Shapiro, who then started to develop a, quote, dream team for OJ's defense. OJ began treatment for depression as he felt that he was in a very fragile state after being accused of murdering his ex-wife and her new potential boyfriend. During this time, OJ was staying at a close friend's house named Robert Kardashian. The last name Kardashian is not a coincidence. This was Kris Jenner's ex-husband. On June 17th, the detectives on this case were officially ready to arrest OJ for two counts of first-degree murder after the DNA that OJ gave matched the blood found on the scene. The LAPD called Robert Shapiro at 8.30 a.m. that morning in order to tell them that OJ would be expected to turn himself in later that day. The reason that police gave OJ a warning of his arrest and allowed him to turn himself in is out of respect, since he is a celebrity and also because the flight risk of celebrities is low. After learning this information, OJ started to show symptoms of wanting to commit suicide. He wrote three letters, one to his children, one to his mother, and one to the public. After delaying the arrest a couple of times, the police decided to go to Robert Kardashian's home in order to place OJ in custody. However, when they arrived, OJ and a friend, Al Cowlings, had disappeared. At 1.50 p.m., Commander Dave Gaskin publicly declared OJ to be a fugitive. Assuming that OJ was going to kill himself, Kardashian decided to hold a press conference and read out the letter directed to the public. OJ started out the letter by claiming his innocence and that he had nothing to do with Nicole's murder. He went on to write that his last wish was for the media to leave his children alone. Lastly, he wrote, quote, Don't feel sorry for me. I had a great life, great friends. Please think of the real OJ and not this lost person. People listening to this letter could clearly hear that it was a suicide note, and OJ's mom even collapsed to the floor. However, OJ was not dead. He was fleeing the police and his friend's white Ford Bronco. This is a common misconception about the case. OJ had the same white Ford Bronco as his friend, so people think that it was his car that he was fleeing in, but his friend had the same car. At 5.51 p.m., OJ reportedly called 911, and the call was traced to Santa Ana Freeway. Almost 30 minutes later, a motorist in Orange County called the California Highway Patrol after he was believed to have seen OJ riding in the back seat of a Ford Bronco. OJ was making several calls on his cell phone, and they were all tracked in order to obtain the direction of his travel. At 6.45 p.m., police finally had an eye on the Bronco, heading north on the Interstate 405. After catching up to the runaways, Cowlings shouted to the officer that OJ was in the back seat pointing a gun at his own head. The officer decided to back off from the Bronco going 35 miles per hour in order to preserve OJ's life. 
At this point, there were 20 police cars following the initial officer in this chase. Even around 10 news helicopters were following the chase from the sky. OJ finally allowed Cowlings to stop the police chase after his old Buffalo Bills coach, John McKay, spoke to OJ on the radio and pleaded with him not to kill himself and to turn himself in. OJ's request was to let him get to his home before turning himself in and arresting him. But before the arrest, OJ also wanted to talk to his mother. At 8.50 p.m., after sitting in the Bronco for nearly an hour, OJ went inside and spoke to his family for about an hour before his ultimate arrest. Inside the Bronco, police found $8,000 in cash, a change of clothing, a loaded 357 Magnum, a passport, family pictures, and a disguise kit with a fake goatee and mustache. OJ was booked at Parker Center and taken to Men's Central Jail. Even Cowlings got in trouble for harboring a fugitive and was held at a $250,000 bail. This Ford Bronco police chase was huge in the media. Streets in Los Angeles cleared and everybody froze to watch the nearest television screen. All local news stations were showing the case alongside ABC, NBC, CBS, and CNN. These channels actually interrupted scheduled programs to broadcast the breaking news. An estimated 95 million people watched the chase. For perspective, only 90 million people watched that year's Super Bowl. Viewers treated the chase like it was a sports game, urging OJ to flee and escape the police, some even hoping that he would commit suicide, which sparked fury in lots of people who were tied to OJ, like Jim Hill. The public's reaction to the Bronco chase was mixed. Some people felt that OJ was fleeing as an admission of guilt, while others sympathized and felt that he was scared of being framed. The chase, suicide note, and items found inside the Bronco were not presented as evidence during the criminal trial. This was mostly because of OJ's celebrity status and the reaction from the public. OJ was arraigned and pleaded not guilty to both counts of first-degree murder and was held without bail on June 20th. Because of the publicity on the case, the California Supreme Court Judge Kathleen Kennedy Powell ruled that there was in fact sufficient evidence for OJ to be brought to trial for double homicide. On June 22nd, OJ stated that he was quote, absolutely 100% not guilty at his second arraignment. As OJ wanted a quick and speedy trial, his defense and the prosecution worked every single day for several months to prepare their cases. The trial began on January 24th, 1995, just seven months after the murders. It was decided that the case would be televised by closed-circuit TV camera via Court TV. Judge Lance Ito presided over the courtroom during the trial, which was held in the C.S. Foltz Criminal Courts building. As far as the jury, in October of 1994, Judge Lance Ito started interviewing 304 potential jurors, each of whom had to fill out a 75-page questionnaire. It took a month to pick the 12 jurors, and they ended up picking 12 alternates. It was good that they picked this many alternates because they ended up dismissing 10 jurors during the trial. Only four of the original picked jurors remained on the final panel. The jury ended up being sequestered for a record 265 days, which was the highest amount in American history, breaking this record by over 30 days. From the original jury pool, it was made up of a diverse group of 40% white people, 28% black people, 17% Hispanic people, and 15% Asian people. 
However, both sides agreed to a disproportionate amount of female jurors, so there ended up being 10 women and 2 men on the final jury. Now let's discuss the prosecution's case. The lead prosecutors included Deputy District Attorneys Marsha Clark and Christopher Darden, with Marsha being in the leader position. They argue that the domestic violence committed against Nicole by OJ is what led to her murder. It was also reported that OJ was a very jealous person even after their divorce. The prosecution theorized that OJ drove over to Nicole's condo in his white Ford Bronco in order to try and get back together with Nicole. But when Nicole refused, he turned to violence and killed her. Then, Ron showed up at the scene to return the eyeglasses, but was murdered in order to not leave any witnesses behind. And since there was no witnesses for the murders, prosecution relied heavily on DNA evidence, especially the blood trail that went from, quote, the Bundy crime scene through Simpson's Ford Bronco to his bedroom at Rockingham, according to Marsha Clark. OJ's DNA was found on the blood drops next to the bloody footprints located on the crime scene, with the probability of error being 1 in 9.7 billion. Alongside OJ's blood, Ron and Nicole's blood was found inside the Ford Bronco. The probability of error for that evidence was 1 in 21 billion. There was also the discovery of the bloody glove that had both the victims and OJ's blood on it. Along with the DNA evidence, there was a shoe print analysis expert who testified that the bloody shoe prints found at the crime scene and inside the Ford Bronco were made by a rare pair of Bruno Magli size 12 Italian shoes, the same size OJ wore. Those shoes were exclusively sold at Bloomingdale's where only 29 pairs of the size 12 sold and only one of them being sold at the store that OJ often shopped for shoes. However, OJ denied buying or wearing those quote ugly ass shoes and that the evidence claiming he did own them was only circumstantial. In the end, the prosecution could not officially prove that OJ did in fact own those shoes, but the evidence of the bloody shoe print in the Ford Bronco matching the shoe prints at the crime scene seemed strong. Now let's discuss the defense's case. OJ hired a team of high-profile lawyers initially led by Robert Shapiro. Later, the case was led by Johnny Cochran, who was known for his work for police brutality and civil rights cases. The team also included defense attorney F. Lee Bailey, Robert Kardashian, Alan Dershowitz, Robert Blasher, and Gerald Ullman. OJ had a very solid team, costing him between $3 million and $6 million. Their strategy was to instill as much doubt as they could into the jury and summarize that the evidence was, quote, compromised, contaminated, and corrupted during their opening statements. They especially focused on how the DNA evidence was mishandled by both the collectors and the LAPD crime lab. Corruption accusations were placed on police claiming police fraud. They were also claiming that the murders happened closer to 11 p.m., making OJ innocent of any suspicion. This was backed up when criminalists Fung and Mazzola did admit that they made several mistakes when collecting evidence. These mistakes included not frequently changing gloves, storing evidence in plastic bags instead of the recommended paper bag, and storing evidence in a police van that was not refrigerated for several hours. The lack of proper storage was the main argument. The defense team argued that leaving the evidence unrefrigerated would allow for bacteria to grow and degrade the, quote, real killer's DNA. The prosecution was ready for this argument, as they denied that the mistakes of Fung and Mazzola did not change any validity of the results. 
They made an argument that the evidence samples were mostly tested at two consulting labs, not the LAPD crime lab where potential contamination could have taken place. They also argued that the quote, real killer's DNA would have shown up on the evidence, but only OJ's DNA was present. In the closing arguments, Christopher Darden of the prosecution downplayed the notion that the police may have wanted to frame OJ, which was the main point by the defense. They argued that all three main exhibits were placed by police. Furman was especially accused of this as he was the one who found the glove. The defense decided to test for EDTA, which is a preservative that was positive for levels higher than what is normally found in blood. The prosecution argued that EDTA is an ingredient used in McDonald's Big Mac and fries that OJ had eaten earlier that night for dinner. The defense presented that all of the evidence was planted, from OJ's blood found at the back gate to OJ's sock that tested positive for Nicole's blood. Perhaps the most famous image to come out of the criminal justice system in America was when OJ tried on the bloody gloves found at the crime scene in OJ's home. On June 15th, Christopher Darden took the prosecution by surprise when he asked OJ to try on the gloves. Originally, the prosecution rejected the idea of putting on the gloves because they had been soaked in blood and froze and unfroze multiple times. When OJ tried on the gloves, they were too tight to slip on, especially when he was wearing latex gloves underneath. Ullman drafted the saying, quote, if it doesn't fit, you must acquit, that Cochran repeated several times throughout the trial. The prosecution stuck to the fact that the gloves had been altered due to the preservation of them. Trying to backtrack, Christopher Darden brought in a new pair of the same gloves for OJ to try on, and they did in fact fit, but the damage had already been done. After the trial, Johnny Cochran told the press that Bailey persuaded Darden into prompting OJ to try on the gloves, and that Shapiro warned OJ that if he was asked to try them on to make it look like they did not fit. Now it's time to discuss the closing arguments. As I mentioned before, Darden really questioned the fact as to why police would want to frame OJ. He brought up the fact that police had been called to the Simpson residence eight times over a two-year period, but was never once placed under arrest for claims of domestic violence. They only arrested him once under the suspicion of abuse in January of 1989. In the defense's closing arguments, Cochran did not try to refute any of the prosecution's claims but instead attacked the LAPD and tried to convince the jury that they had framed OJ. He claimed that Furman was racist and known for being very harsh and violent toward black men. Cochran wanted the jury to send a message to police through acquitting OJ. After claiming this, Cochran received many death threats and had to hire bodyguards. Before the verdict was read, there was a large fear that race riots would erupt in Los Angeles and even the rest of the country if OJ was found guilty for the murders. In order to prepare for this possibility, LA officers were placed on 12-hour shifts, and over 100 officers were ordered to ride around the Los Angeles courthouse on horseback the day of the verdict announcement. The worry went as far as President Bill Clinton, who was briefed on security precautions for potential riots. At 10.07 a.m. on October 3, 1995, O.J. Simpson was acquitted on both counts of first-degree murder. The jury decided on this verdict after just four hours of deliberation. It was estimated that around 100 million people watched or listened to the verdict's announcement worldwide. The New York Stock Exchange decreased by 41%. Even work productivity dipped and costed an estimated $480 million for companies around the country. 
The verdict divided the nation as most African Americans believed that OJ was framed and justice was served, while 75% of white Americans disagreed with the verdict. Discussion of racial elements of the case are still discussed and studied to this day, almost 30 years after the trial. Critics of the jury's decision pointed out that the deliberation time was disproportionately short compared to the lengthy trial. Lots of books came out after this trial, and unfortunately, I haven't had the opportunity to read any of them, so I can't recommend any firsthand. Cochran was the first to publish a book in 1996 called Journey to Justice. Later that same year, Shapiro came out with his book titled The Search for Justice, where he admitted that he did not believe that OJ was framed by the LAPD, but agreed with the verdict due to the amount of reasonable doubt. On the prosecution side, Marsha Clark released a book in 1998 titled Without a Doubt. In this book, she tells the story of every aspect of the case. In her opinion, she believes that the DNA evidence alone should have convicted OJ. In the same year, Christopher Darden released a book titled In Contempt. Darden took a jab at Judge Esso and claimed that the case was poisoned by the fact that he was, quote, starstruck and allowed for courtroom to be turned into a, quote, media circus. He also recounts the painful memory of asking OJ to try on the gloves and how it may have affected the final outcome. Perhaps the most shocking thing to come out of the aftermath of this trial was OJ's ghost-written book titled If I Did It, which was described as a, quote, hypothetical confession. After facing much backlash, the book's publication was canceled alongside a TV interview with OJ. However, Ron Goldman's family awarded rights for the book to be published in order to make OJ seem guiltier. It wasn't until 2018 that the unaired interview with O.J. Simpson was released, where he gave a detailed account of how the murders would have gone down if he was involved. So, what happened to O.J. after the trial of the century? Well, in 2008, he was convicted of multiple felonies, including the use of a deadly weapon to commit kidnapping, burglary, and armed robbery. This occurred after a 2007 escapade in Las Vegas, Nevada, where OJ attempted to steal sports memorabilia that he claimed were stolen from him. He was sentenced to a minimum of nine years and a maximum of 33 years in prison. He was kept in Lovelock Correctional Center in Nevada. He only served the minimum sentence of nine years for these charges and was released on parole on October 1st of 2017. If you found this case interesting, I highly recommend the show The People vs. O.J. Simpson, American Crime Story. It follows the highlights of the case and does a very good job at presenting both the tragedy of the murders and the drama observed in the courtroom. I would say it's a pretty accurate recount of the story, but if anything, it's just good TV. I think it's available on Netflix still. But that's going to do it for me on this case. If you're listening to the podcast, please consider following and sharing, and if you're watching on YouTube, please like and subscribe for more content. Make sure to leave your theories in the comments down below and make sure to respect each other. I want this to be a safe space for all who stumble upon this channel. I hope you enjoyed this video slash podcast and as always, stay safe out there because you never know who you can trust.